This week on Flyover from NPR News, modern medicine is amazing. But in America, should we have to earn it to use it? I'm Carrie Miller. Science marches onward towards miraculous new therapies and treatments. But Americans feel stuck in a political and philosophical battle over the nature of health care. It boils down to this. Is good health care a right or is it a privilege we have to earn? When it comes to insurance, the Affordable Care Act has stumbled along a narrow middle ground between government support and personal responsibility. The law has been a literal lifesaver for some people. But in parts of flyover country, no companies are willing to offer insurance under the law anymore. I want to hear from you this hour. How do you think Americans should access modern medicine? Call in at 1-833-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News, a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. Today, every American needs it, every American uses it, and yet we remain undecided on whether health care and the insurance that covers it is a right or a privilege. That's the essence of what Congress has been arguing about for nearly a decade. But that argument that you hear politicians having is affected in part by how we see ourselves as Americans. Now, more on the identity piece of this in just a moment. But let's come back to the right versus the privilege. Think about it this way. A right is something that doesn't have to be earned, doesn't have to be deserved. Wouldn't most of us say that every American has the right to clean water? A privilege is something that's granted or is given as a favor or a benefit. At the moment, even with the Affordable Care Act insuring many more Americans, we're still operating as if health insurance is a privilege. We're going to talk about why today. And as we delve into this, I'd like to hear from you. Has your family ever been in a situation where you needed some fairly basic health care and you weren't sure how to get it? Tell me briefly about that. I anticipate a lot of calls on this. Or are you concerned that other Americans who can't pay for their own health care or health insurance have more access to health care than you do. Here's the phone number as you think about that. one flyover one That's one 596 8371 You can talk to me about it on Twitter, of course. I'm at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag flyover radio. We're beginning in Des Moines, Iowa, where a single health insurer remains for people who are buying their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act exchange. Clay Masters is a host and reporter for Iowa Public Radio, where he's been covering the health care debate. And I asked him how it is that Iowa ended up with just one insurer. I mean, the problem really is that insurance companies say they're not bringing in enough money. And uh, Iowa, the insurance commissioner, regularly says that they've been just trying to play catch up with the increasing rates. Does that mean that there are a number of insurers who are leery about coming back into the into the exchange. That's definitely what it means. Also, with just Medica left, there are not enough younger or healthier people uh, signing up for insurance. Mm -hmm. And so rates are seeing a premium hike of about 57% in the coming year in Iowa. 
if there is not something done before people start signing up on November 1st. I'm going to get to that in just a second, but what you said about the risk pool is interesting. As I was reading what was going on in Iowa, it looked like there were a number, a sizable number of young Iowans who decided they would rather pay the penalty than get insurance through these exchanges. I'm curious about what your reporting has told you about that. There are many people here in the state, too, that have said that they will just pay the penalty um, because in some instances it's cheaper. I mean, I went on to just before we had this conversation to Medica to take a look at, you know, to get a quote like anybody would if they were signing up for insurance. Mm-hmm. The cheapest plan I could find for myself, I'm in my 30s, I don't smoke, it's about $500 a month. Wow. So that's a, a, a right. Yeah. So it, it's costly. And then there are also just a lack of understanding how the exchange works. So people might not even know how to sign up for, for health care insurance through the Affordable Care Act. What's Medica saying about the premium increase? You said somewhere between their projections projecting between 43 and 50-something percent of an increase in premiums. Why? Well, again, that goes back to the, the fact that there are, the risk pool is not spread out enough that you would have in a more competitive market. So, there, again, there's not enough younger, healthier people who are signing up for, for insurance through Medica. So how would you say, Clay, that the average Iowan who is on the exchanges, that's how they get their health insurance, feels about this bigger question that we're asking and, you know, whether the health insurance is a right or a privilege. The question really comes down to affordability. And um, I I, I guess there were many people that I can remember. I'm also primarily a political reporter. And I can remember during the campaign, you had a lot of people that were in support of the president um, who uh, then as a candidate, who they were saying they didn't like the Affordable Care Act because it was making their premiums increase. So you do run into people who say it it doesn't matter if it's a right or a privilege. They don't say that directly to me, but they say that if premiums are going up for them, and many of them are uh, middle class people that I have spoken with over the course of the last couple of years, uh, they just don't like what they call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. I wondered if you've noticed that as we've seen in other counties and other states where there are a large number of people who supported President Trump also tend to be a higher number of people who are getting their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, through these exchanges or other ways of that. And, you know, how how we kind of explain the contradiction of that. Will you find that in Iowa? Oh, definitely you'll find that in Iowa. And really, there, this is a very rural state, as many parts of uh, Minnesota are. And there are hospitals that are concerned uh, about what funding mechanisms are left for them in rural parts of the state. And you're hearing from a lot of people who supported the president and his candidacy to become the commander in chief who are now facing a difficult challenge with their health insurance. Has the popularity, the approval rating for the Affordable Care Act improved in Iowa as we see that it has, you know, in in opinion polls across the country? Yeah, I think what you're seeing in Iowa uh, mirrors a lot of what you're seeing in opinion polling across the country, um, especially when you look at the way that questions are asked. Somebody was doing research that asked voters 
questions about what's on the Affordable Care Act. And, and when they say, you know, do you support these different measures that are in the ACA? They say yes. But the moment that you uh, refer to something as Obamacare, uh, the, the approval of it is, is not as much there because it's all of a sudden politically charged. Another big issue going on in the state of Iowa right now, and I've been doing a lot of reporting on, is uh, Medicaid. Ah, the privatization. Um, right. Yeah. And, and you know, Medicaid, it's about anywhere between a fifth to a quarter of the state's population is on Medicaid. And Iowa was one of those Republican states back in 2013 that expanded uh, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And they took that expansion money with, under a Republican governor. They called it something a little bit different. They called it the Iowa Health and Wellness Plan. And there were a couple slight tweaks to that. But then Republicans could say, you know, we, we did our own thing. We didn't expand uh, uh, Medicaid. And you had Democrats that then controlled the state Senate saying, hey, you know, we were able to expand Medicaid in the state. Last year, without any kind of legislative action, uh, our former governor, Terry Branstad, who's now U.S. ambassador to China under the Trump administration, uh, without legislative approval, moved the management of Iowa's Medicaid system uh, into private for-company management. So there are three companies that are managing uh, Iowa's Medicaid program. And this isn't something that's completely new, but what has set Iowa apart from many other states is that it moved the entire population of Medicaid into this privatized uh, management system. And Medicaid, of course, covers uh, a lot of children, uh, long-term disabled, uh, elderly, a, a, a population that needs some of the most important care. And this was seen as a cost-saving measure. And the Medicaid companies right now are, uh, or or the companies, the insurance companies that are managing Iowa's Medicaid system are needing more money. And so there are a lot of questions right now about was this the right decision? Uh, Was this something that should have been handled the right way? And the big point here too, uh, long-term disabled uh, people, they can't they're not going to get better. I mean, privatized managed care is primarily meant for those people that you can improve their health. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big debate going on. There's actually a lawsuit pending in the courts right now or move, making its way through the court system uh, from six disabled Iowans to try to uh, basically make things go back the way they were. But, you know, many states across the Midwest are trying to get a, a, a budget balanced and looking for savings where they can. And there are not any real comprehensive studies out there that say, you know, privatized managed care of Medicaid is the way to go, although there are people uh, that make the claim that, that that is the way to go. That is Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio with a view from Iowa on this question that we're asking today about whether health care is a right or a privilege and how that fits in with America. American identity. I'm asking you today, have you been in a situation where your family needed health care? You weren't sure how to pay for it. How has that shaped your idea, your opinion on whether health care coverage is a right or a privilege? And I want to grab a call here from Sal in San Diego, California. Hi, Sal. I only have a couple minutes, but I really want to hear from you on this. What's your situation? Okay, great. I'd like to share a story with you, and it's in regards to my father. He's uh, currently 70 years old, but about five years ago, when he was 65, he was unable to get affordable health care because of his uh, type 2 diabetes. Anywhere we would go to apply for insurance, they would say, hey, you have a pre-existing condition, so it's much more costly for us to insure you. And the insurance would come out to fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars $1,600 a month. Wow. And being that he's 
retired, he couldn't afford insurance. So we actually had to fly him out to Mexico and to India, which was far more affordable. My brother and sisters and I would pitch in to fly him out every year to get a checkup. It actually turned out he needed to get open heart surgery, and he actually had to do that surgery in India because he couldn't afford insurance. Sal, that's incredible. Your father was getting health care in India and in Mexico because he couldn't get insurance here for his diabetes. Wow. So so how does that shape your idea of whether healthcare is a right or a privilege? I might have the answer to that. What would you say? Uh, I can say that now that because of the Affordable Care Act, we have affordable insurance. And now that he has insurance that we can afford, which is still you know close to $500 a month, it's by no means cheap, but it's far more affordable than it was before. So uh, we would have loved for it to be a right. But if it's a privilege, we just hope that it's something that's affordable because, you know, without insurance, we could have easily lost it. Good to have your call from San Diego today. Thanks so much, Sal. And if you've just gotten in on Flyover, it's a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. Today, we're asking an essential question about health care as the political debate continues. How is our idea of what it means to be an American influence whether we think health insurance is a right or a privilege. How does this work in your household? Have you been in a situation where your family needed some kind of health care and you couldn't afford it? Does that shape your idea of whether you think of this as a right or a privilege? Here's the phone number. Join the discussion. 1-83-FLYOVER-1. And I'm on Twitter at CarrieMPR, hashtag Flyover Radio. Stay with us. Not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join our conversations on Twitter. Use the hashtag FlyoverRadio or leave us a message at 187-FLYOVER1. You can find past episodes on our website, flyoverradio.org. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover. It's a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times, and we're coming to you from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. A conversation today about something that says a lot about American identity and our views around health care and health insurance. I'm asking you if you've been in a situation where your family needed health care, you weren't sure how to pay for it. Has that shaped your idea of whether health care coverage is a right or a privilege. one flyover one If you get a busy signal, call us back. We're getting a lot of calls. And you can reach me on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Our guest for the conversation, Vivian Ho, is a health economist at Rice University and at Baylor College of Medicine. And she's with us today from Houston, Texas. And Vivian, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you, Carrie. Sally Pipes is with us. She's president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, and she's with us from L.A. today. And Sally, welcome to you. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Carrie. Great to be on. Uh, Vivian, I I use that example of clean water as something I think most Americans would view as a right. But I'm curious about whether you think that's the right analogy to what we're talking about when it comes to health coverage. Well, I think it's a good analogy. We don't necessarily have clean water written into the Constitution as a right, and I'm not sure we should write health care in as a right either. However, 
Um, you know, there's plenty of health researchers, um, health policy experts who say that 20 to 30 percent of what we're spending um, on in health in healthcare in the U.S. is is waste. So we could be doing it for much cheaper. And isn't it interesting that every other developed country provides universal health care. Health care is a right. It's provided in different ways, but everyone has access to it in countries like Canada, the UK, Germany, Switzerland, um, and then all the developed countries in Asia. And Sally, I want to make sure you're with me on how I how I um, explained what a right and a privilege is. I, I said that a privilege is something that's granted or given as a favor or a benefit. A right is something that really doesn't have to be earned. It doesn't have to be deserved. And even as Vivian said, well, water and health insurance aren't written into our Constitution, but we do think of some things that aren't constitutional as rights. So so how, what do you think of those definitions? Well, I, th- I think they're interesting, Carrie. I think um, as Americans, and I'm a former Canadian, um, I'm an American now, we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, we don't have a right to, as, as Vivian said, to health care or clean water. I mean, should we have a right then to housing, to food? That's more important to our life. How do you decide how large those rights should be and who gets them? So I basically think on the health care issue, we want to have a health care system where people you know, have the choice to get the type of health care that they need and that fits their their family. I thought your caller, Sal, was interesting. He said his father was 65 and he had to go to Mexico and India. Well, I wondered, I mean, our Medicare system is there for people um, age 65 and over. Why wasn't he on Medicare? Um, you know, we're spending $600, $600 billion a year on Medicare, So, and, and 55 to 60 million people are on it. So why wasn't he on Medicare. Sally, what do you think about what Vivian asked, especially given the fact that you grew up in Canada? Every other Western nation seems to have decided this, again, whether it's, you know, whether it's written into their constitution or not. And we as Americans are still having this debate. Why? Well, I think, you know, I grew up in Canada. I was an economist at the Fraser Institute, and we started a publication called Waiting Your Turn, A Guide to Hospital Waiting Lists. The the federal government totally took over the health care system in 1984 under the Canada Health Act. Each of the provinces runs its own health care system. The problem is that the demand for health care in Canada, Canada is one of three countries that has a true single-payer system, Canada, North Korea, and Cuba. And so, you know, the government spends about 11% of gross domestic product on health care, much less than the 18.2% we spend here in America. But the the result of that is, as the demand is much greater than the supply, we have long waiting lists for care, we have ration care, and lack of access to the latest technology. Today, in Canada, the average Canadian waits 20 weeks, five months, wow. from seeing a primary care doc to getting treatment by a specialist, and that's more than double what it was in 1993. So I think we have to be careful. My mom used to say, I hope you're not becoming an impatient American. Americans are not going to stand for those kind of waits like people in the UK. They've got the longest waiting times under the National Health Service today than they've ever had. So I think we have to be very, very careful about going down the path that Bernie Sanders and his Medicare for All. California, you know, we're having hearings starting again on Monday, tomorrow, on SB 562, Mm -hmm. which is the Healthy California Act. So I think I'm very worried about all of this because, um, you know, I have many stories of my cousin who's a doc and my own family. So I think let's not go down that path. Let's open up the American healthcare system to more choices and opportunities and not fewer. Let's take some calls here to Hannah listening in Raleigh, North Carolina. How does this fit with your own, your own family story, Hannah? Yeah, 
Yeah, so I kind of want to go off, um, well, so particularly the, like, instance that shaped how I feel about healthcare. I believe that healthcare is a right. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was in seventh grade, my dad um, fell and ruptured his spleen. Um, He was in the hospital for two weeks afterwards. Um, And I wouldn't say that I was, like, from a, like, higher-income family by any means. Um, And so we accrued $30,000 in medical debt because we didn't have um, comprehensive insurance for that type of, like, injury. Um, and so that was something my parents, my, they've still yet to pay it off. Um, and wow. I, that was when I was in seventh grade and I'm currently 26. Um, so like they've been struggling that for, with that for my entire adult life. And that kind of has shaped how I feel about this. And I also kind of want to play off of what your previous caller just said. So she like kind of alluded to this whole like concept of access, um, versus the ability to like actually get care. And so, like, I feel like the Republicans these days love to preach this whole, like, thing of access. But, like, the thing is, a lot of people don't have the money. So even if they have access to a decent health care plan, they don't necessarily have the money to, like, front the copays. And, like, that's something that I'm super thankful I'm a student, and so I can get student insurance. Um, but right now, I know for a fact, if I uh, wasn't a student, I wouldn't have insurance. And so if something happened to me, I'd likely uh, have some form of, like, medical debt, and that would weigh on top of the fact that I have, like, tons of student loan debt. And so right. it's just we, ha- we live in a country where we're supposed to have equal access to opportunity and, like your previous caller said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But, unfortunately, it can be very difficult for low-income people, especially when we have such massive income inequality in this mm-hmm. country, to get access to care yeah. when we have... Hannah, let let me do this. I want to come back to Vivian on your family's story with the medical debt that uh, is still being paid off. This is the argument, Vivian, that proponents of uh, single payer to the ACA to beyond that make, that Americans should not, that why are we a country that forces people into medical bankruptcy to pay for their health insurance and their health care? Is that a consequential argument when you look at this question of whether it's a right or a privilege? Well, I I think it's certainly um, a valid um, complaint to be making. And what we have found, the research is starting to come out, that after Medicaid is expanded under Obamacare and some earlier Medicaid expansions, there are fewer families that are going into debt and, and having to declare bankruptcy. Medical bankruptcy is an extremely difficult problem for low income people. Um, and and when it hits a family um, like Hannah's, it then has, I'm sure, it had implications for what she decided to do in terms of college. And, and there are families that then decide not to send um, their children to college because they can't afford to after they've suffered that medical debt that stays with them for the rest of her life. So, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't incur in, in other countries. And, um, you know, it, you end up, I end up thinking, why are those bills so high? And, and part of it is because we're spending one in six dollars um, in our U.S. economy on health care for prices that are just so much higher than in other countries. So we supposedly have a competitive health care system, but our prices that we pay to our doctors, to our hospitals, and to our drug companies are substantially higher than they are in other countries. And that's what's creating the problems, really. It's, it's, it's this issue of the underlying cost is so much higher in this country than elsewhere. Uh, to the phones here to Carrie in Boise, Idaho. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for calling. Hi. What's your story? Thank you. 
Well, I'm actually sitting in a hospital laboratory waiting room, like literally as we speak, dropping off some samples from my son. Um, he has had serious health problems since he was born. And I before, I was very anti the ACA. You know, I thought this is just ridiculous. People have to take care of them their own selves, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I had my son, and I realized without the ACA, my son will have massive medical debt throughout his entire life. He will be denied access to health care because he won't be able to afford the, the, the necessary care for his life. He, knew, he needs very expensive medicine every single day, an injectable. Uh, he takes and he has Medicaid, disability Medicaid, and uh, it costs Medicaid $1,000 a month, whereas if on our insurance, it would cost us $3,400 a month for that same wow. exact medicine. Um, and, you know, my, my son didn't do anything wrong. You know, he was just born this way. It's not his fault, you know, and he was born with a broken body. Um, and that's, that's the reality. Our bodies break, you know, and everybody's susceptible. Nobody is, you know, none of us are um, exempt. You know what I mean? Tomorrow you could get in a traumatic car accident, have brain injury. You could, you know what I mean? There's, Slip and break your hip. I mean, nobody is exempt, um, and so everybody thinks like, "Oh, it's somebody else's problem." Until something really bad happens to you, and then you say, "Oh my gosh, I can't do this alone. How am I going to do this without help?" Um, Carrie, I think, I, I, if, if I may, I think you're making you're posing a really good question that I want to take back to Sally. Sally, I think Carrie has a point that this this is a somewhat esoteric argument until you're in the situation as she is to say my son could be denied health insurance for the rest of his life. That that changes the equation, and it changes, obviously, the way she's been thinking about it, should it? Well, I think we have to sort of do a breakdown of, of you know, the insurance, um, the American population. About 160 million Americans have employer-based coverage. There are large pools, and for the most part, these people who have employer-based coverage get very good coverage. We have about 55 million people on Medicare for our seniors, and we have now about 76 million Americans who are on Medicaid or in California Medi-Cal um, for people earning between 100 and uh, the below 138% of the federal poverty level. But I think one of the things um, about your caller, what we do need to have is for those people who don't have employer-based coverage, and if they're not on um, Medicaid, um, we need to set up, and this was part of um, Tom Price's plan, part of Paul Ryan's white paper. Mm-hmm. was to set up high-risk pools right. so that those people, and there are about 6 million people who are in that category, that they can get good coverage. And as your first reporter said, they're not putting all the pressure on the premiums for those people who are young and healthy. This way, people who are young and healthy can get the kind of insurance that they want, as we've seen under uh, President Trump's executive order, where um, people could get short-term plans if, they're, if they lose their employer coverage or if they're outside the open enrollment period. But people can get the kind of coverage that suits them. But the high-risk pool, putting, you know, 30 to $50 billion into those would take care of approximately the um, 6 million people who have pre-existing who aren't, you know, covered so, under an, a, a family plan, an so, employer plan. So, Sally, you've brought up something exactly that I wanted to talk about. And let me go to Vivian on this. And I was wondering, Vivian, if, if this right or privilege thing is a, is a kind of chicken and egg thing, where because we have this health insurance system that's tied to work and jobs, we've decided that there are certain 
standards in some ways for deserving health insurance. And and one of them is having a job, a good worth at work ethic, self-reliance, sacrifice. I mean, is that how we ended up, because so much of health insurance is tied to employment, with, you know, in a situation where we ask this question? Well, Okay, so so 49% of people in the U.S. have employer-provided health coverage. So even though it sounds, you know, tens and tens and, and over, you know, 150 million, it's only half of us right now, and, and, and who knows if it's going to shrink, about 60, unfortunately. 60%, actually, yeah. Um, that's not the numbers take- I saw. Anyway, so, um, so, so the reason why we started with employer-provided health insurance is because it, um, you know, it, it, it's a great pool for insurers to take because because work status is sort of well okay you're healthy enough to get to work when right. you start your job right. and then and then you have all sorts of levels of illness but it's all it's 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 you know distributed relative to the entire population so it's it's a fair group and it's a reasonable reasonable group that insurers like to take so it's it's much less risk than taking on individual people from the markets but the other reason why we have so much employer provided health insurance is because large employers you know there there's this tax benefit and so the employers um uh, don't have to pay their payroll, um, the, the the payroll tax on 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 the compensation you receive in terms of health insurance, and you don't have to pay. So there's a tax advantage to you purchasing health insurance through an employer that makes it very very attractive. And so this unfortunately leaves anybody outside the market. Not only do they not get access to that health insurance, which is also all you know almost all paid by the employer. The employees only pay about twenty percent, um, but then they don't get the tax advantage either. Um, so that really puts those people in the individual market at a disadvantage. You're listening to Flyover. If you've just gotten into the conversation today, as you know, it's a national call-in show about American identity and who we are in turbulent times. And we are taking on this question of health care as a right or a privilege. You know that there is legislation, again, working its way through Congress, and there is a big debate going on and some shifting sands here on where President Trump is and where Republican leaders of Congress are. We're asking, what is it? Where is it that this idea of health care as a right or a privilege meets the concept of who we are as Americans, this idea of the work ethic and the self-reliance and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And we've asked two guests, Sally Pipes with us from the Pacific Research Institute and Vivian Ho with us from Rice University and Baylor College of Medicine to work through it with us. And I'm asking you as well, do you have a situation, a story from your own family that has led you to reconsider this idea or think about health insurance or health care as a right or a privilege. If you're getting a busy signal, call us back. And I want to remind you, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Carrie NPR and use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Patty in El Dorado, Arkansas, called to say, when my husband died in 2014, I was forced to pay for my own insurance. I didn't qualify for the ACA. I pay for $725. Healthcare is a privilege. I believe that those who can't afford it think it's a right. And let me get to Dan in Wilmington, North Carolina. Dan, I've got about a minute. Uh, Can you be a little brief? Yeah, I can. So my wife and I, um, I'm a paramedic. She's an emergency room nurse. And we see people coming in all the time. And I think what the problem is that if whether you think it's a right or a privilege is irrelevant, if we start taking away health insurance, and treating it as a privilege, people are, we're trying to force people into a primary care system for a preventative and a maintenance 
status. If you don't, they're going to start accessing the most expensive form of care being emergency care for primary care needs more and more often. So it's it's just going to wind up costing us more. Whether we want it to be a privilege or a right is completely irrelevant because the reality kind of dictates otherwise. Yeah. So, Dan, you're saying people are, are going to be in a situation, no matter what they believe about this, where they're going to need some kind of health care. And if they don't have insurance, they end up in the ER. Right. Where it's expensive kind of care. Of an ambulance where it's going to cost you well north of a thousand dollars just to get a ride to the hospital. I, I appreciate the call. Uh, hearing from Dan there in Wilmington, North Carolina, wherever you are in flyover country, I'd like to hear your view on this. Get to us on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR hashtag Flyover Radio. And when we have an open line, one eight three Flyover One. Stay with us. The conversation continues. appreciate hearing voices from across flyover country, check out some of our past episodes. We've talked about guns and religion, the real cost of creating American jobs, and whether it's still possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Find each episode at our podcast or on our website, flyoverradio.org. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a call about who we are in some pretty turbulent times, and today we're talking about health care as right or privilege. Uh, I, I want to ask you both, Sally and Vivian, before we go right back to the calls here, about why our views on the ACA and health insurance as a right or privilege differ from the way Americans generally see a program like Medicare because, I mean, Medicare is viewed as something that, Vivian, you're entitled to. I, I know a lot of Americans think the taxes that they've paid in is what they get back, although they end up probably getting a lot more care than they get for the taxes that they've paid. But we also think of it as a social safety net program. Why do we view health insurance, the ACA, differently than we view Medicare? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right that um, just about everybody who um, gets makes it to Medicare age is going to get more out of the program than they actually put in in terms of taxes. I think the difference is, you know, and you can see it in your callers, it's the ones who get sick or have someone in their family who gets sick who then realize, oh, gosh, this is incredibly expensive. I didn't realize Um and and they realize how important it is to protect against that risk of financial loss. And then there are those who are lucky enough um, that they haven't encountered the problem of the healthcare system. And and they eventually will. Everyone will at some point. Um, then they realize that um, you know at that point it might be too late. Um, so it's a question of of what your experiences are. Of course, everyone who's on Medi, you know. Once you hit age 65, you really can't avoid um, uh, something happening. And then you're in the healthcare system. Um, and then you're very glad you have that coverage. Yeah. So, Sally, why is it that we see this so differently than, than the way we see Medicare? Well, I think I just want to make a point about Medicare. You know, the pro program came into being in 1965. Right. Um, it cost $3 billion in the first year, and the, the architects said it would cost $12 billion by 1990. And in fact, it cost $110 billion, so it's a very expensive 
uh, program. And I think, you know, we're looking at as my group, age group, the baby boomers, as we begin to retire, there's going to be a huge um, uh, watermelon of us coming into the retirement age. And so I think we need to make some major changes to, to Medicare, because when it came into being in 65, people lived on average to 65. Today in America, they live to almost 80. And so, you know, I think they need to do some age changing. I mean, um, I, I, but, but Sally, and, I, I hear what you're saying. You're, you're talking about the policy of this. Really, our conversation today is more about that bigger philosophical question. And even given what you've just said about how expensive Medicare is, you still see wide approval for it among Americans. And I want to know what the difference is. I mean, why well, do we I, view... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think that, for, and, and as Vivian said, when people pay in to Medicare all through their working life, they think they're entitled to it at the, uh-huh. at the end, of, end of their life. But what we're seeing now with Medicare is one in three new Medicare eligibles is having a hard time finding a doctor because docs are saying the reimbursement rates are too low, and so they're not taking these patients. So what does that mean, you know, for Medicare? And, of course, if you don't take Social Security when you turn 65, you keep it till you keep uh, and you keep working, you can continue to be on your employer-based coverage if you're still working till um, age 72. But, but I think and the I think essence, we're going to see more of that. I, we're going to see more people. I, I hear you on that, but I think the essence, coming back to you real quick here, Vivian, is there is this perception that, I've contributed to this, and now the government owes me something owes me. back, right? A- absolutely, absolutely. And 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 then you know it's sort of then they're saying, well, look, I have employer provided health insurance, so I paid for this, but right. but they don't realize the tax advantage they received, and and that's a benefit to their to their pocketbook, um, but it's 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 invisible, right? Uh, call here from Mike, listening in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Mike, how's this work in your family? Hi. Hello. Well. Uh, several kind of disjointed comments. One, I am a retired military member. Uh, when I joined the military, I was supposed to have medical coverage for life provided through the military, either on base or through something called TRICARE. In the 70s, they said, well, we're going to kick you out of TRICARE when you hit 65 because now you're going to go on Medicare. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really an option, but that's that's an aside. Uh, two, primary is I don't think healthcare is a privilege because rights are, as the one call, uh, guest said, they're listed in the Constitution, not conferred by it. Okay. Uh, Mike. A privilege or an entitlement. Okay. Uh, and I don't have an answer to that, but what I do have a real comment on is waiting lines. If you have more people waiting, wanting the same service, you're going to have lines. And none of these programs make more doctors. Okay. Hey, Mike, you're, we've had a lot of interference from your, uh, on your phone there. I think I have the essence of what you said. I'm going to go to Liz, listening in New York City. And Liz, you're a physician thinking about this. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Tell me what you're thinking. So the, com- the comment I wanted to make is that health care may be an entitlement, but it's priced like a luxury. Health care is very expensive. Mm-hmm. And the actual cost of health care, I think, often exceeds the value. And the cost of health care in the United States, so health care is a for-profit, for-profit enterprise, maybe not for a lowly clinician like myself. I care for many uninsured people, many of whom are foreigners, and who really come with very different expectations of, you know, what's basic health care. Um, but this question of whether people, like when somebody's sick, and there's the existence of a cure. How do you say no? How do you look in somebody's eyes 
and say, we have a treatment for you, but I can't, but you're not eligible, or your insurance won't pay for it. Or in many cases that I deal with, you're not even a citizen, you're undocumented, which is actually easy because sometimes the drug companies will, you know, take the tax right off of giving away drugs right. to the indigent because it's good for them. So, but the cost of health care makes health care unaffordable. A cataract surgery can be done in the third world in something like, I don't know, a couple of minutes for a few bucks. It's not a big deal. It's a, you know, it's a high throughput, routine operation, whereas here it's thousands of dollars. And we don't talk about the enormous, egregious, hemorrhagic profits that are made in the name of, provi- of promoting health care. And healthcare, well, I could go on and on. You know, from a societal perspective, we promote illness. We don't promote health. We uh, uh, now screen for diseases, you know, so that we can find market to treat. Liz, we don't prevent coal miners long. Yeah, Liz, I, I want to go to our healthcare economist on, on the essence of what you said. Is she right, Vivian? Uh, you know, I'm not sure I could have said it any better than 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 what she said. You know, here we are debating whether healthcare is a right or a privilege when we could get give it to everyone if we fixed the problems with the high prices that we have in terms of healthcare. That would um, solve the debate, you think? I, yeah, I do, and I, I think sort of eliminating. You know, what we do is we reward healthcare providers for quantity and not quality. And so you, a hospital actually makes more money if you develop heart disease and need open-heart surgery than if you, they tried to keep you healthy and um, keep you on a healthy diet and get you on um, to cholesterol-lowering drugs and make sure that your hypertension was under control. We don't have the reward incentives um, set there right now. The Affordable Care Act is trying to fix that. Private health insurers are trying to fix that. Um, but there's not there's not necessarily enough push in the system, and, and I think the, the switch in administration is slow down um, health and human services efforts to reward based on value rather than on quantity of services provided. Kim says on Twitter, we should be ashamed of the way we treat the non-rich. Universal health care is a right. And to the phones here to Rebecca in Iowa City. Hi, Rebecca. What's your experience with this? Hi. Um, about seven years ago, I moved from Florida to North Carolina and had had um, an experience in Florida where I developed an autoimmune issue. When I went to, um, and I was a stay-at-home mom, so I was willing to do pay what I needed to to have coverage for my major medical, um, realizing I might not get really good coverage, mm-hmm. but I was willing to get coverage. And I was unable, due to my pre-existing condition with the autoimmune disease, to have anyone even give me a quote. They literally refused me. Wow. <laughs> I was literally unable to get health care. And so I ignored some symptoms. I was only able to work part-time due to my, my autoimmune disease, and so thus unable to get insurance through my employer. I tried, but I literally became so sick, I had to go see a doctor. And they believed that I had ovarian cancer. So what are you to do? Do I, you know, have the surgery and live, or do I not have the money to pay for the surgery and and die. So it was really a matter of, I guess we'll pay for this the rest of our life. <laughs> um, fortunately, there's programs that are in place there. I now work as an insurance um, billing and huh. billing person at a mental health office mm-hmm. and have gained understanding of insurance in these last three years and try to see it as, you know, fighting 
my best that I can to get the people who've paid for their coverage to get the coverage that they need. Mm-hmm. However, what happens is that what um, Liz and then the health and economist was talking about is that what happens is these insurance companies are out to make money. I looked one time at the CEO salaries, and this is just really shocking, and some people may have seen this, but because I knew how much we were reimbursed, it was amazing to see that as the CEO salary went up, the amount that my office was reimbursed for a procedure went down. So I really do think, you know, it's hard to say a right and a privilege, you know? I'm alive, but I still am unable to, um, I'm only able to get health insurance because of the ACA. Otherwise, I would be uninsured. Rebecca, I really appreciate the call. I'm, I'm glad you heard the show and you had an opportunity to call in. You know, I was thinking, Sally, as I was listening to Rebecca's story and so many of the others, whether, and, and I think this is something you were alluding to, whether the distorted cost of health care and the economics of it in some ways obscures you know, what ought to be the true debate over this. I mean, when you hear stories like Rebecca's, that ju- that overrides every other kind of true political conversation you can have about writer privilege on this. What, what would you say to that? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, one of the ideas behind the ACA was that we were going to, we had 49 million Americans who were uninsured. This was going to be a way when it was passed to help all people get coverage. In fact, you know, only 10 million people are covered on the exchanges out of 30, 330 million people. So, you know, I find it it difficult. I think people need options. So someone like your last caller, she should, you know, be able to get coverage through a high-risk pool. She shouldn't be discriminated against. But we need options. Young people, you know, probably aren't going to get sick. They want a high-deductible plan. They want, to, they want to have coverage in the event something happens. But we need to give people many options, not categorize people into, into sort of little boxes that, that aren't working for everyone. And under the ACA, one of the things I think in the election that we saw when Trump was elected was that people you know, we're facing not just now, but in from 2014 on very high premium increases, the deductibles, you know, the average family on a bronze plan today, the deductibles 12,000. These people can't pay a deductible mm-hmm. of 12,000 if you're middle class. And then the small networks of doctors and hospitals. So many people have called me and said, I bought the silver plan or the the platinum plan, and my doc is not in it. Fewer mm-hmm. and fewer doctors have taken the ACA. So we need to have many different types of, of, of plans so that everyone in America has access to affordable and quality care. Let, let me make sure that we have the numbers right here, because I, I think you were you were adding some numbers together that were a little unclear. 330 million people in the United in our States. Country. Right. So I, so I want to make sure that there was no promise that the ACA was going to cover, uh, obviously, the entire population. 10 no. million. Uh, Vivian, feel free to step in here. 10 million more Americans covered under the ACA. How many? How many remain without insurance? Just so we have some clarity around this. Well, there's there's about 28 million today. Americans are still um, uninsured, and 80 okay. percent of the people that got coverage got subsidies or were on the Medicaid expansion. But the Congressional Budget Office had predicted, you know every year that there would be at least 21 million people covered under the ACA, and it just it just didn't happen. And a lot of it has to do with the high premiums, the high deductibles. Right. And, that, and Vivian... And, and fewer insurers. And Vivian, you'd concur with that? That's why the ACA um, has fallen short? Go ahead. Well, 
okay, so part part of the problem, yes, is that we're not getting enough younger, healthy people in the market to per, to purchase health insurance. But, um, you know, the biggest problem is that we don't have enough health insurers offering plans. As as, as you started the show off with with the, the situation in Iowa, which is bleak, and and in many other um, parts of the country. But that's because. Um, the system is so uncertain. If you're an insurer and you don't want to make a loss, why would you enter this market? Uh, so there, there are things that could be done. They won't solve all the problems, but there are certainly things that could be done to give insurers more certainty. Um, you know, the um, the insurers have been asking for the reintroduction of risk corridors. They asked to be um, paid risk corridors, I think, in the first year, and then Congress just eliminated the funding for that. Um, there are things that could be done in terms of um, the definitions of the markets. Um, and, of course, um, just lately, the recent, you know, um, executive actions to allow the creation of um, association health plans, which pulls more um, younger, healthier people out of the market, the decision right. not to provide cost-sharing reductions to health insurers. So um, health insurers are going to be on the line for losing millions. We can get competition and lower the prices, um, and and again, that's not going to solve all our problems, but it sure, certainly would present what prevent what we're seeing um, that's coming for next year, which is sort of 40, 50 percent increases in premiums. Uh, Chuck says on Twitter, like most tough issues, the answer is in the middle and people must take ownership of personal health. Laura says, let's have more affordable cash discounts if you don't submit to insurance. She says, I pay out of pocket anyway. And to the phones here to Steve in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. So, oh, thank you. Um, I kind of have a unique uh, perspective on this. I'm a physician um, that used to be chief of medicine for the indigent hospital here, mm-hmm. and my office was in the middle of one of the worst places. But I'm also disabled now from an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to try to make some quick points. One, there was a study done in the university here, six miles difference, wealthy suburb, not so wealthy suburb, mm-hmm. 12-year difference in life expectancy. Wow. Um, that doesn't sound like the pursuit of life and happiness to me. Another thing, Paul Ryan, they want you to go bargain and as if it's a, like a real business. Have you ever tried to get a price for an operation or anything uh, from a, a hospital? It's impossible. It, it all changes depending on your insurance, who's in the operating room that you didn't expect. You can never get a price for those kind of things, you know, um, and if you fall down in the middle of the street and have a heart attack, they're going to take you to the nearest hospital by law. You have no choice then. Um, so it's just kind of crazy stuff. And we, I heard you say a comment about personal responsibility. Right. My office used to be in the worst part of St. Louis, and I had mostly working poor. And the nearest, the nearest um, grocery store was about six or seven miles away, and that wasn't even a large store. It was just a very small store. So people are usually left going to the gas stations and buying whatever they can. And if you have to take three buses in the rain, are you really going to put, you know, milk and oranges and apples and load it up with vegetables in your paper bag, uh, you know, and try to go on the bus? You can only take so much. Um, people in the inner city, they, they don't have... The, um, they can't even go to get healthy food, to be healthy. I, I, you know, it's, it, it, it's like they have no, the 
people in Congress have no idea how real people live in this country. Steve, um, I... They have their great insurance and they make money. So anyway, that's it. Those are, I could go on and on about this, but um, it's a right. It's For, a... Forgive me, Steve. Uh, we've come to the end of the show. Vivian, Sally, thank you so much. Really good to have you on Flyover today. Thank, thank you, you, Carrie, so much. It's a conversation Bye. about health care, and it can continue. I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. I'll be looking at it all week uh, ahead of our next flyover show. You can reach me at Carrie NPR. Use the hashtag flyover radio. All of our episodes are at flyoverradio.org.